0: It is definitely good to be with you here this Lord's Day morning as uh, we are able to not only worship, but to hear our Lord speak to us uh, through the reading and the preaching of His Word. And so to that end, if you would please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, and this uh, this morning's message is going to come to us from verses 8 through 22. So Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll begin reading in verse 8. So let's give attention to the reading of God's Word, Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8. Hear now the Word of God. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise." For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would speak to us, O Lord that you would open the uh, eyes of our faith, that you would plow the fallow ground of our hearts, that by the outpouring of your Spirit, you would make your word effectual unto salvation and unto our sanctification. We pray, O Lord, that you would give unto us wonder, that you would fill our hearts with praise, that you would grant unto us, O Lord, a fervent desire, not only to love you, to believe on in Jesus, but also, O Lord, to glorify you in everything that we say, think, and do. We ask and pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I was recently watching a, a series of documentaries on National Geographic where a celebrity was going around various places in the planet. He was scuba diving, he was mountain climbing and and exploring all sorts of different regions uh, of the world. And one of the places upon which he was taken was to the edge of an active volcano. Uh, maybe perhaps not exactly a place that I would be interested in. I would want to stay far, far back, maybe just look at pictures. That would be enough for me, right? But they, 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 they brought him up to the very edge of the volcano, and the person that was accompanying him was a volcanologist. In other words, somebody who studies volcanoes for a living. And as they stood at the edge of this volcano... Uh, it was, you know, spewing hot lava into the air. And they even said, don't look up because as the lava shoots up, it cools and then it comes down in the form of rocks. And so they had helmets on. And uh, like I said, you know, way too close for me, but fine to watch on TV. And as, as, as they were watching and, and just standing on the edge of this volcano, uh, the volcanologist, uh, you know, told the celebrity, uh, you know, tell me what you see. And so he described everything that he saw, you know, the the smoke. Uh, He described the the red lava just, you know, spouting off into the air as it would uh, burst and as it would just scatter uh, throughout the sky. And then what the celebrity did as he's narrating the events that are transpiring upon screen unveiled is that the volcanologist was blind, uh, that the volcanologist had no ability to see because of an accident that had occurred a number of years ago in his life And so what the celebrity then cued the viewers into was the idea that even though he was able to see things with his eyes, that the volcanologist who was blind was actually able to see, if you will, with his other senses. And so then as uh, the celebrity turned to the volcanologist and said, tell me what you see, obviously using the term see equivocally. In other words, the man was blind, but what he was able to do is he was able to describe all sorts of things uh, that the celebrity really could not see or detect. Why? Because the man who had become blind said that all of his other senses had become far more acute as a result of his blindness. In other words, his, his sense of touch. You might say, well, how on earth can you touch a volcano? Well, there's a, what would what, what happen is that he could actually feel in his body uh, the, the, the shock waves that the volcano was sending off so that he could tell the celebrity, here comes another burst. And he said, where? I don't see it. And he said, because I can sense it in my chest. I can feel it. He could also uh, hear with a far greater degree of acuity uh, than the celebrity because the celebrity was just looking with his eyes. But this volcanologist was, in a sense, was listening and could hear far more many things because his sense of hearing was fine-tuned because in the absence of being able to see his other senses, were picking up more information to, uh, to counter the blindness or in an effort to minimize the effects of the blindness. Well, this is the type of thing that we see, I think what the author of Hebrews is trying to present to us here. So often it's the case that we limit ourselves by what we can see. And in this case, it's not the necessity to try to fine tune our other senses so that we can see more. There may be some sort of physical benefit to that. I mean, I can always remember sitting at the dinner table, and all of a sudden my dad would say, Everyone, quiet, quiet, stop talking. And then he would go and, you know, tilt his head. And we'd be like, what are you doing? And because it's because he would hear something, you know, and it would be, maybe it was the ice maker. Uh, maybe it was the air conditioner making a funny noise that it wouldn't usually make. So he was always kind of listening to those things, but it often didn't work. His sense of hearing didn't work as well when my mom was calling him, but that's a whole other story. You know, that's a whole other story. It's not a question of fine tuning our other senses, but rather it's telling ourselves sometimes We need to see more despite what our eyes see. And it's not a question of the other senses, but rather seeing more with the eyes of faith. In other words, not judging things by what our physical eyes can see, but rather judging things by what the eyes of faith can see. Because when we let our eyes dictate what it is that the eyes of faith can or should see, this can sometimes fill us with doubt. It can fill us with fear. It can perhaps instill anger in us because we don't see the things that we want to see. And so this is precisely what the author is pressing here with us. He's saying, don't look with the eyes of your a physical being, but rather look and see more clearly with the eyes of faith. And so what I want us to do is I want us to, to explore what the author does here by going into the life of Abraham. Uh, he's drawing upon the life of Abraham for important reasons, reasons and I want us to see why, how Abraham was not using his physical eyes, but rather the eyes of faith. And then secondly, I want us to see what the author of Hebrews has to say about not just looking with the eyes of faith, and not with the eyes of our bodies, but I want us to consider the principles, if you will, as to how he encourages us to go about this. In other words, it's one thing to say, believe. Look with the eyes of faith. Okay, fantastic. But I think what the author is also saying here is he's saying, let me also show you how to do it. Let me give you some principles as to how. So first, the, the Abraham's uh, background, the, in particular, the sacrifice of Isaac. And then secondly, how do we see despite our sight? Now, when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, he promised to bless Abraham. But remember, here at this point, Abraham could not see the things that God was promising. We read in verse 8 of chapter 11, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Not knowing where he was going. We read in Genesis twelve two that God promised to Abraham. He says, I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I want you to leave. Where am I going? Just go. I'll make you a great nation. Well, okay, but right now it's just me and my wife, Sarah. I don't quite exactly see. You know, one of the things that is common in our household, and unfortunately we have instilled this in our children because it's perhaps a weakness of my wife and myself, is that we always got to know where we're going. We always want to know what's going to happen. You know, when I'm at breakfast, what's for lunch? When I'm at lunch, what's for dinner? Uh, When it's Friday night, let's make our Saturday to-do list so that we know what we're going to do. And so, meanwhile, the kids are, you know, kind of wanting to do the same thing. What are we doing tomorrow? Where are we going? So it's difficult sometimes to pull off a surprise when we say, just zip it, sit in the back of the car, and be surprised when you get there. Abraham didn't ask any of those questions. He just went. He could not see the promised land. He could not see the the, the, the descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. And when God once again approached him in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, and he says, fear not, Abraham, for I am your great shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abraham looks around and he's still childless. Where is this innumerable host that you promised me? You know, he says, "Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. My servant will be my heir. I still don't see any fulfillment of your promise. Think about this. About 10 years has gone by, and there's nothing visible to see. And Abraham's saying, okay, but where is the fulfillment of your promise? Behold, you have given me no offspring. Ten years go by and Abraham sees nothing. I don't know about you, but that to me sounds very challenging. You know, in our age of instant credit, in our age of, you know, Amazon Prime two-day delivery, some cities, same-day delivery, you know, in the, uh, the age of, hey, Siri... How many people died on the Hindenburg? I asked Siri that question the other day because I was talking about the Hindenburg and I didn't know. Instantaneous answers. What happens if we were to say, okay, I'll promise you something. I'll give you something. And then 10 years go by and you're like, hey, come on, you know, where is it? What he saw... What Abraham saw with his eyes, in a sense, was completely contradictory to what God had promised him. Moreover, not only was there no fulfillment of the promise after a decade, but even to the contrary, their bodies were withering away. Come on, Lord, we we better get going. Things are not getting any better. And yet God assured him of his promise. This man, he says, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. There's a sense in which he says, be patient. I'm faithful. Don't judge by what you see with your eyes. And so we know that from the narrative that Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness, but this didn't mean that Sarah and Abraham's waiting had somehow now miraculously stopped. And in fact, we know that Abraham and Sarah, in spite of God's reassuring promise, took matters into their own hands and Sarah said, okay, here, let's get this thing going. You go and you take Hagar, my my handmaiden, and let's have a child Through her, what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? We know that after that, there was an ensuing strife and conflict, and things did not work out. God essentially was saying, no, this is not how I said it would go about. Finally, 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 after 25 years of waiting, Abraham and Sarah had a son, Isaac. Isaac. It's even marked by a bit of humor. You know, God had visited and said, you're going to have a son. And Sarah laughs. She's like, are you kidding me? So God said, uh, all right, you're going to name him laughter. You're going to name him Isaac. Why? Because you laughed. No, I didn't. Oh, yes, you did. You know, so God does have a sense of humor. But you can imagine the sense of joy after 25 years of waiting. We can guess as well that they would have marveled at God's miracle. Here they were, nearly dead, is the way that the scriptures describe them, and yet they have a child. And they were, I suspect, thrilled in the ensuing months and years as they watched this miracle child grow up. You could say that he was a literal incarnation of God's promise. God said, you're going to have your very own son. And now here he is after 25 years of waiting, a quarter of a century. Verses 11 and 12, we read, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. But this didn't mean that the trials were behind them. Because just because they could physically behold uh, God's fulfilled promise in Isaac's face didn't mean that everything was going to be settled. And this is where we have to remember the sacrifice of Isaac. You know, there's a sense in which we can think that there was peace, there was joy, there was satisfaction and contentment. And what shattered the serenity was God's command to Abraham in Genesis 22 to, take your son, your only son, i.e., not Ishmael, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. I can only wonder what went through his mind. What did you say? Are you sure? Oh, Lord, I, we waited 25 years. Oh, Lord, you promised. How would it strike you if you definitively, without doubt, and unquestionably knew that God was commanding you to sacrifice your child? But then add to the fact that this was Isaac, the miracle child, the son for whom they had waited for a quarter of a century, the heir from Abraham's own body, who was supposed to be the means by which God was going to fulfill even greater promises that he would make Abraham a great nation. How can you fulfill the rest of your promises if you're going to ask me to sacrifice the very means by which it is supposed to happen? How can you go back on your word? How could you take back what we have waited so long for? Again, what in their own eyes would be undoubtedly difficult because if you look upon the situation merely with our physical eyes, then you could see the insurmountable obstacles. But there are a number of indicators in the Genesis narrative itself that tells us that Abraham was not looking upon the situation merely with his own eyes. He was instead looking upon the situation with the eyes of faith. A God-given faith. One that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But nevertheless, the eyes of faith. Because what happens on the heels of this command... What happens on the heels of this command... Is immediate obedience. Genesis 22:3: Abraham rose early in the morning. If there was ever a morning to dawdle, it would have been that one. You know, uh, well, let's, uh, let's, let's have breakfast. Well, I'm not sure what we're going to take on the journey. I can't find my saddle, I can't find my jacket. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham rose early in the morning, immediately obedient. There was a precise obedience because Genesis 22, 3 says, Uh, tells us that he rose early in the morning and he took his son Isaac. Again, might he have been tempted to say, Ishmael, come with me. We have to go somewhere. There was a persistent obedience. Because in Genesis 22, 4, we read, On the third day. You know, how many of us have ever been in the car and we're heading somewhere? Maybe it's somewhere that we don't want to be. How many of us have pulled out and we get halfway there and we think, maybe I should just go home. And yet here, Abraham persists in, on his journey to Mount Moriah, not one day, not two days, not, but three days. He's persistent in his obedience. And then when they finally arrive at their destination, as they get closer and closer to Mount Moriah, knowing that he's going to have to sacrifice his son Isaac, we also see his great faith because in Genesis 22, 5, he tells to his servants, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. He knew that Isaac was coming back. He had faith. He was not looking upon the situation and the circumstances of his life merely with the eyes of his body. What could Abraham see with his eyes, the eyes of his body? He could see his only son. He could see the wood of the sacrifice. He could see Mount Moriah looming at the distance. He could see the long hike to the top of the mountain. And yet he didn't perceive the situation with the eyes of his body, but with the eyes of faith. Verse 17, chapter 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He said, I have to be obedient. I cannot do this according to the flesh. I have to do this in the power of the spirit by faith. And even if it means ending the life of my son, God will give him back because God keeps his word, because God will not go back on his word. And so the author of Hebrews is pointing his fellow Hebrews, his fellow countrymen to Abraham for a number of reasons, because in the midst of their own suffering and persecution, they may have felt as if they were all alone, that no one knew what they were going through. So the author points them to Abraham, among others, so that they can powerfully understand that he too lived under similar circumstances. Who of us would be so faithful as to follow through with such scrupulous obedience to God's commands? Now again, remember that the source of Abraham's obedience is his God-given faith, a faith that he receives by God's grace alone. But the point is this, is that the author wanted his recipients to look at their own circumstances where their eyes would be deceiving them. All we see is persecution, all we see is rejection, all we see with our eyes is the absence of God. And he says, I don't want you to look at the circumstances with your eyes. I want you to believe despite what you see. And so this brings us to our second and final point, which is seeing despite our sight. Now, there's a sense in which I think that we can understand why it is that the recipients of this letter were struggling. You know, it's only natural for us to look around and to assess the world based upon what we see, the recipients were suffering persecution. They knew very clearly and plainly that in their former life as Jews, they didn't suffer. So of course, they thought about going back. You know how I've described it in in months past as as we've been going through this, the book of Hebrews is that if you were to walk into a room and it was on fire, your immediate reaction would be to take a huge step back, if not to run in the other direction. So as the, the Hebrews go and they step into the room of the Christian faith and all of a sudden the fires of persecution greet them, it's natural for them to want to take a step back. Moreover, in the face of persecution, where all they see is their persecutors, because that's all their eyes can see, they cannot behold God. With their physical eyes, they think perhaps that God had forgotten them. Or maybe his promises were uncertain. But again, remember the whole point of this 11th chapter. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The recipients of this letter could not physically see God's care for them. They physically could not see the promises of God in Christ. They physically could not see his faithfulness in the face of persecution. And so the author is reminding him, in a sense, close your eyes and you'll see him. He's there, he's faithful. This is why he highlights Abraham's great faith, both in his willingness to depart from the Ur of the Chaldees to go to a place that he had never seen before, as well as in his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. But as I said at the beginning, embedded in his appeal to Abraham is the author's implicit instruction and how he wants to teach his recipients how to do what Abraham has done. To look upon their circumstances with the eyes of faith and not merely with their physical eyes. How to see things with the eyes of faith. You know, this is the thing that I've had to grow, you know, accustomed to. And I've said these things before is that the older I've gotten, the more I have to use my glasses. And I hate it. I always feel like I'm looking through a dirty windshield and I'm, I literally wash my glasses like once, twice a day just because I can't stand to have anything in my, in my way, but I, I can't go without them because now it's to the point where if I'm driving in the car and I look down at the, the, the speedometer, I, I can't read it, you know, and, or I, I pick up a box in the grocery store and I'm like, I can't see, tell you how many calories this thing has, you know, so you break out the phone, take a picture, blow it up and, you know, doing all those kinds of things. And I thought, if you know, is there a way to improve my vision? My wife had the strangest thing happen to her that after her second child, uh, our second child, I guess I should say, um, she did all the work, of course. Uh, her vision improved. Her prescription literally improved. And I'm like, I, I want to find out how that happens. D- is it more carrots you know, uh, you know, I've heard that you know, if you do eye exercises and you exercise without your glasses and you look at things, none of that has worked. There's no way to improve the vision. But there is a way to improve the vision of faith. You can strengthen it. And this is what the author is pointing out. How? How do we improve the vision of faith? First of all, Abraham did not let his present circumstances define his faith or fill him with doubt. Don't let your present circumstances in what you can see define your faith. We read in verse 9, chapter 11, "...by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise." He's an heir. He's a prince of the kingdom of God. And yet he and his children are living in tents. He did not let his present circumstances define his faith. You know, in the moment, in the moment, the incision of the surgeon's scalpel may seem like the absolute worst thing that you can possibly do. How can this be helpful to cut into flesh, inflict a wound, to cause the loss of blood, to instigate pain? But in the larger context of the surgery, it's necessary because it's an important step to greater health and healing. The infliction of that incision, however painful it might be, leads to healing, it leads to the elimination of an illness, of a disease. You know, do a thought experiment as you go through the various events of the lives of the saints and think of the moment in the scope of the whole. Just like you think of the incision in the scope of the greater healing process. In the moment, David is an adulterer and a murderer. In the moment. But in the scope of the whole, he's the anointed of God, a man after God's own heart, and he's also the man who says in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. In the moment, Abraham is childless, living in a foreign land in tents, And yet in the scope of the whole, because of his great faith, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 appeals to him as the model New Testament believer. The one one who received the gift of faith whom God justified because of his faith in the promise. So don't let your present circumstances in the moment define your faith. Secondly, secondly, is that we mustn't measure God's faithfulness by our own timetables. Again, Hebrews 11:13, these, all of these patriarchs, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. You know, how often is it the case that we say, "O oh Lord, give me patience and give it to me now?" I don't like praying for patience because I know, I know. It's like the older I get. You know, when I was younger, I was, you know, kind of silly and looked at things with Pollyanna glasses. Oh, Lord, give me patience. (laughs) Now I know if I pray for that, oh, the Lord's going to answer that one. All right. He's going to say, all right, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you plenty of opportunities to learn patience. No, thank you. (laughs) No, thank you. I'd rather not. But okay, yes, we need, we need to pray for patience. So, Lord, give me patience. Help me not to measure your fidelity by my impatient timetable. When Abraham and Sarah tried to force God's plan with their scheming through Hagar, it was disastrous. And so, what the author's subtle message here is he's saying, I know you want out of this persecution. Be patient. God may seem like he's late, but he's always right on time. He's always right on time. And sometimes I think that we will go to the gates of heaven itself thinking that God didn't meet our timetable like we should. We think he should have. And yet, it will only be when we are perfectly sanctified and we are purged of every last vestige of sin, completely glorified, that we'll, we will be able to look back upon our lives and will be able to say, Oh, now I see. Now I understand. You weren't late, I was impatient. So don't let your present circumstances define your faith. Secondly, do not measure God's faithfulness by your own timetable. Third and finally, don't judge your circumstances by what you can see, but rather judge your circumstances by what the eyes of faith can see. And so this is where the author makes this point in verses 13 and following. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They did not, could not see these promises in a sense, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, which is something they can only do by faith and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth for people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of them, are thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would look at the promised land that was to be theirs, but their eyesight didn't stop there because the eyes of their faith carried their physical sight upward to heaven itself. They were looking through the promised land or beyond the promised land because they knew it was simply a token, an earthly sign of something greater. But you ask, how can we fix the eyes of our faith upon that which we cannot see? Through the word of God. Through his gospel promises in Christ. And so often is it the case, and and this is something that struck me as I was studying this passage and preparing the message, is that sometimes, you know, we ask the question, children ask the question, Dad, why uh, why do we have to close our eyes when we pray? You know, and as a parent, I've learned that I have to police the children, you know, so let's pray, bow my head in prayer, and then I look over at my kids to make sure that they're closing their eyes too. And I won't say who's the offender's. But sometimes, every once in a while, you're like, hey, you know, close the eyes. And I think sometimes they think, why do I have to close my eyes? Okay, so you're not distracted. Okay, yeah, sure. But sometimes I think it's an important exercise for us to close our eyes so that we can heighten our perception of the things that we can only see by faith. In other words, so that we can see despite our sight. I think that's what lies behind fasting. You are are turning your eyes and your senses away from the things of this world so that you can heighten the clarity of your faith, so that you can perceive God's word more clearly, so that you can meditate upon it more zealously, so that you can have a greater attentiveness to God's word. And it was the, so it's the gospel of grace that gave these patriarchs eyes to see beyond the pale of this world to the glorious gates of the eternal city. Faith in Christ gave them the strength in the midst of their trials because they knew that God was faithful and would see them through. By faith, Sarah conceived... Though she was barren, by faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. By faith, Jacob pronounced covenant blessings upon his sons. By faith, Joseph told his children to take his bones to the promised land. The Old Testament patriarchs were looking with the eyes of faith by feeding upon the gospel promises of God. Don't let your present circumstances define you, Uh, Don't uh, measure God's fulfillment by your own timetables. And don't judge the circumstances of your life by what you can only see with your eyes. Beloved, the author's message was not just for his recipients, but it's for us as well. We have to pray for God's grace in Christ to enable us to see with the eyes of faith that we would improve our vision. Pray for patience in the midst of trials. Don't look at the things in this world and think that that's all there is. Meditate, therefore, upon this passage and think deeply upon the truths that lie within. Stand with Abraham as he was about to plunge the knife into Isaac so that you can see the depths of his faith against all odds. Pray that we would trust in Christ both for our salvation and throughout our lives. And pray that God would enable us with the eyes of faith to see his faithfulness in Christ and that we would look beyond the pale of this creation to the the gates of the heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have given us the eyes of faith to see. But so often, O Lord, we allow our physical eyes to get in the way. We pray, Lord, that we would use our physical eyes correctly, that in beholding our circumstances in this life and in beholding this creation, we would not stop and rest there, but rather through the eyes of faith, we would look beyond to the promises that you have given us in Christ, that we would look beyond to the gates of the new Jerusalem itself. And that even if, O Lord, it seems as if you are taking too much time, that we would remember that you are right on time and that you are using every single moment in our lives to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. O Father, give us faith. Help us in our unbelief. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.